Boss, we're not going to gas town. Bullet farm. We're heading east. I'll pass it down the line. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. Got milk? Because we have Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 13, which begins with a bunch of war boys getting with the program, and it ends with Rictus doing some quality assurance. Yeah, you could call it that. Well, someone's got to. Might as well be Rictus. He's got the intellect for it, I guess. Okay, you keep talking about how Rictus has the mind of a child, and... I'm just not really seeing that yet. Well, we are still pretty early on in this process of getting to know Rictus. Yeah, I mean, he has like said a few things that just seem, I agree, they seem a little simple, but not to the extent that I would call him simple-minded or the mind of a child or compare him to Blaster. Well, the only I'm thing he said is Signal Gas Town, Convoy's on its way. That's the only thing he said this entire movie in the first 12 minutes. Right, but every time we talk about Rictus, you bring up how he's mentally deficient in some way. Yeah, that's part of his character, though. (laughs) But we haven't seen any evidence of that! Well, we will. Okay. Rest assured. Okay. So despite what I said at the onset of this season about listening to Yuri and Travis's podcast... The You Are Awaited, a Mad Max Fury Road podcast, by the way. I actually started listening to what they have. And my plan of attack is to listen to their podcast, but not listen ahead. So the only episodes that I'm tuning into are covering minutes that we've already talked about. It's my way of trying to minimize overlap. Okay, I understand your strategy, but also having done three complete seasons of a minute-by-minute podcast, we never just stick to the topic at hand. We never just stick to our minute. Mm -hmm. We always overflow into what's happening at the end of the movie and back at the beginning of the movie, and we're all over the place. So I think you are going to get some overflow. I do understand that I am skating on thin ice. Granted, It's not like I'm skating on thin ice over a particularly deep pond. No, no, you're right. Yuri and Travis have such a casual way of doing their show. They're just two buddies talking about Mad Max Fury Road. They're not a couple of obsessive married people diving into a piece of fiction. We're going way over and above what they care to do because, you know, they've got a different way that they're approaching with it. And... Frankly, I really like that they exist in some sort of past parallel to us because I like having two that I can listen to. But (laughs) the point of me bringing it up is that there were a couple of things from the first, oh gosh, I think I've listened to four or five episodes because their first three episodes is them going through the first three movies. And then when episode four comes out, that's when they actually start talking about Fury Road. But anyway, they made a couple of cool observations that I wanted to bring up here on the show. When they were talking about the first movie, they mentioned that the Knight Rider 
one of the main things that he was shouting about was toe cutter. And the phrase, do you see me, man, is very, I guess, flash forwarding to the idea of war boys wanting Joe to witness them. Oh, oh, I like that. Mm -hmm. That had not even occurred to me before. Bit of a parallel there. Yes. I mean, we weren't even thinking about Fury Road when we were talking about the original Mad Max. No. We were staunchly in 1979. Also, when they were talking about Immortan Joe's introduction, his suiting up scene, they noticed that his shoulder pauldron, which I don't think we really identified what was on there, but they said that those are squashed flat bottle caps, which of course made me think of Fallout. Because yeah. bottle caps are currency in that game. Very much so. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then when Furiosa came on the screen, they noticed that her outfit has like a little pauldron over one shoulder. And that's the shoulder on the left side with the robot arm. And I thought it was interesting because that feels like a mirror image of Max's outfit. Yeah. Where he's got the pauldron on the right side. And the right side pauldron in Road Warrior is also where he's got the short sleeve. Oh. So you can And do, that's the side that he got shot on. You do pauldron... Robot arm, pauldron, short sleeve. So there's kind of a balance there. Yes. I had noticed the pauldron, but I had noticed it when we were watching the movie one last time before we started recording, but I did not put it in my notes and mention it. But I did notice that one, but mm. I did not make the connection between the robot arm and the half sleeve. I like that. That's really good. So those are a couple of things from... The You Are Awaited podcast that I just wanted to bring up because I thought they were pretty cool. But getting into the minute at hand, the first thing we see this minute are the war boys getting with the program. Furiosa has pulled off the road. She's driving off into the wilderness. And this is just a continuation of them pulling off the road and catching up to her. All except for the lead car, who takes a moment to realize that something has changed. He hears all of this screeching and turning and all that stuff and then he turns around to notice it and i think it's pretty plain that the screeching and the kicking up dust was what alerted to him and it makes me wonder that if he hadn't heard the screeching and noticed all the gravel being thrown around if he had just kept on going and the scene that would have happened where this lead vehicle arrives in Gastown, all proud of itself that it successfully made a delivery run and then they turn around and realize there's no war rig behind them it would have been pretty funny. It would have been pretty mortifying. They don't really, that I can think of, ever really bring up the subject of capital punishment. Like, crime so heinous to any particular society that they warrant a death penalty. I kind of think in this society, that particular crime of arriving without the people you're supposed to be guarding would probably get them killed. We brought up when we discussed the custom steering wheel, the idea that if you don't create something that Joe likes that he'll throw you off the top of the Citadel. I imagine getting thrown off of something tall is the catch-all punishment. They just bring you up to the top of the Citadel and throw you off, and then you're just out the wind. That's very hands-off for them. Yeah, let gravity decide. Mm-hmm. It's easier than... Than putting them on a horse and putting a mascot head on them and well, sending them out into the desert. Yeah, yeah, so I was going to say it's easier than actually pulling the trigger or actually kicking the stool out from under them or actually flipping the switch. So as the lead vehicle catches onto the program, we get this really nice wide shot. And you've got Gastown in the distance. It's still blinking. But the war rig is driving off to the left. And obviously our main focus is supposed to be the war rig. But 
I paused it and I was looking around and I see a couple of oil pumps off to the right. And that reminded me of Road Warrior and the compound. And when we were in Road Warrior, we were so obsessed with the compound that they were able to build it up so much and create such a established place. And now, after seeing Barter Town and getting introduced to the Citadel, the compound just seems so minuscule, doesn't it? It really does. It's another way where this movie just does everything bigger and badder than any of the other Mad Max movies have done before. Do you think there's any possibility that it's the same location? That Gastown built up around the remnants of the compound? I'm going to say no because of geography. That's very true. There were like the pinnacles Mm -hmm. nearby, but too close to be the Citadel. Okay. I'm not tossing out the window the idea that at one point there could have been little fortifications around those pumps. I just think with Gastown there, all of the efforts went into that one location. So if there were stragglers out by the individual pumps, they're not hanging out there anymore. Jumping back to Road Warrior, do you think it's possible after the extent of the damage that anybody with any particular skill set could come in and fix it and make it a producing Mm. oil rig again? I want to say no. I think it was too far gone. I think it was too far gone. I think the pump being destroyed... You don't know how much of that underground infrastructure was damaged. Very true. That would be the tricky part. After this wide shot, we cut in a bit closer to the war rig and we can see Ace, the guy who was plugging in all the stuff, shouting about, you know, hooked on, that guy. Yep. He's hopping to the front of the rig because he wants to figure out why they've suddenly turned left. And he gets to the window and he point blank, boss, we're not going to Gastown? And Furiosa turns and gives him this look. And I can't help but imagine that if she were a more sarcastic character, she probably would have had a snarky answer for him. Yeah, she does everything but actually roll her eyes at him. Yeah. Boss, we're not going to Gastown? Oh, no, we're definitely going to Gastown. We're just going the long way. Yeah. (laughs) Around to the backside. (laughs) Boss, we're not going to Gastown? No, we're not going to Gastown. (laughs) I do like this moment that we are being shown in practice that she is a woman in power. Mm -hmm. She is in charge of this whole thing. Ace just takes this information and like, okay, we're not going to Gastown. We're going east and heads back to relate it to everybody else. She's not questioned. He does what she tells him to. And that's just the way it is. I think we've all at one point been Furiosa. You're doing your thing, everything's fine, and then suddenly the person above you makes a radical decision that takes everybody careening off to another direction, and you're like, um, hi, hello, I've got people under me looking for instruction, can you clue me in a little bit? That sort of thing. Absolutely. That happens to me at work all the time. And my conclusion is usually pretty much what Ace is saying here, okay, boss, I'll do whatever (laughs) you tell me to. It doesn't really matter to me. Taking what little information is willing to be given, Mm -hmm. we're heading east, is what she says. And he's just like, okay. Yep. (laughs) And I know I've been Furiosa before, where there's a certain plan set up, and then like a bolt out of the blue, no, plan's going to change. We're going to do something different. I'm not sure I've ever been Furiosa. I am made for middle management. I am perfectly happy 
taking instructions from other people and making those instructions happen. So yeah, actually like making the decision myself and saying, okay, plan B, this is it. This is what we're doing. Just isn't really in me. If my boss says plan B, I'm like, okie dokie, plan B. Just as long as someone has an idea of where this uh, yeah. wagon train is going. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an ace, not a Furiosa. Yeah, I definitely pulled a Furiosa when we had Crystal, John, and George on. Crystal's whole, George, I didn't know you were going to be here. That wasn't planned. Like, when George joined that call, she <laughs> didn't expect him to be there. That was just a decision I made after the fact, unilaterally, without anyone's approval. Just tossed him in there. <laughs> One thing I do like about Ace is, sure, he's middle management. He's got to do whatever Furiosa wants because that's his position. But when she doesn't answer him initially, she turns from looking at him to looking back at the road. And he does this little, like, head bob body shift to try and stay within her peripheral vision. Like, he's there looking for an answer. Hey, boss, we need a little bit of explanation here because everything's going a little sideways what's going on please don't ignore me yeah it's like his way of reiterating the question mm -hmm. which is nice because he's not nagging her although he might want to into answering the question but he is reminding her that he is waiting for an answer the troops are restless yes so to speak another little detail that i like about this shot where it's just ace and furiosa by the window there is a leather covering over the windowsill that Ace is holding on to. And I like that despite the fact that this is a post-apocalyptic world and everything is rough and tumble and metal and jagged as we're going to see with the buzzards coming up, that there are still people willing to put in a little bit of effort for aesthetic reasons. Like, if you're going to rest your arm on the windowsill, it's nice to have a little leather patch to put your arm on. And if you're hanging on the door... It's equally nice to have something a little bit more tough and textured, like a leather wrap, to help you not fall off. Yeah, society has gathered itself together enough that a certain class of people, not everybody, no longer has to worry and spend all their time on the basic resources of just life. They have food, they have shelter, they have water. Yeah. So then they can move on to other things. That's the reason why we can have nice things. Yes, exactly. There are a lot of reasons why we can't have nice things, but there are a few reasons why we can have nice things. Yeah, free time. But not now, because we're on the job. Absolutely. So Ace moves back towards the tanker, and he shouts, thunder up, thunder up, which I love that. He's doing like this arm pump thing, and this is the exact moment where you do a needle drop on like an ACDC song, but they don't have ACDC in this movie, unfortunately. It would be... Pretty awesome, but whatever. He continues explaining this is not a supply run. He starts shouting, go, go, go. And at this point, the lead car catches up. And the guy on the gun that noticed everybody turning, he shouts, Ace, what's going on? And Ace is just exactly what Furiosa says. We're heading east. And this guy is like, why? And Ace is like, I don't know. It's just the order. Get up in front of the rig where you're supposed to be. Once again, this whole setup felt very militaristic in their behaviors, mm -hmm. and I really liked that. It makes it feel like an actual army with actual organization and actual purpose instead of this cult of personality. Mm -hmm. And these are all sycophants who are ready to die at any moment. I like how Ace takes so much control of the war boys. 
that he's got catchphrases that he does and hand movements that he does. I appreciate that he's pointing with his entire hand because there are so many people that are like, oh, when you point, there's one finger pointing out and three pointing back at you or something like that. And it's so dumb. So he's pointing with his whole hand. That way there's no fingers pointing back at him. (laughs) But I think it's also like, you know, he's gesturing to the other vehicles. Yeah. So you've got to use those bold easily seeable gestures yeah if he just uses one finger in that sun it'd be so easy to not be able to see that one finger they could misinterpret it as like him holding out a fist yeah so i want to cut back real quick to the thunder up now my interpretation of him saying thunder up thunder up was hey gather so that i can yell the updated information to all of you Hmm. is that what you got i interpreted thunder up as get in position be ready sort of thing. Okay. I think most of them were in a state of this is routine, this is a supply run, no big deal, we can slack off a little bit. No, this is not a supply run. It's time to thunder up, thunder up. So be on your guard, put your head on a swivel. We're going off-road. Okay. That's how I interpreted it. Mhm. According to Urban Dictionary, thunder up is the term used when the Oklahoma City Thunder basketball team gives an ass whooping to other teams. So that's what the internet had to say. Okay. So with the lead car retaking its place at the head of the convoy, we're going to leave them behind because we are going to smash cut to... Boobies. Yep. We suddenly find ourselves in Joe's, I guess, milkmaid room or something like that. It's just a space lined with chairs and reservoirs and women hooked up to breast pumps. And I count... Seven along the wall behind Joe with at least another four on the other side by Rictus. And then each reservoir has a woman attached to it. And then there's even more women not attached to the machine. So Joe has a bunch of women and they are just sitting there constantly breast pumping. Yeah. So I took the lead on gathering some information about pumping for obvious reasons. So I did some digging on the history of breast pumps. I'm going to read from an article from The Atlantic called A Brief History of Breast Pumps. The first pumps were patented in the mid-19th century, typically as medical devices used to treat inverted nipples and to help infants who are either too small or too weak to nurse. But as widely available consumer products, they've been around for only a little more than 20 years. It wasn't until 1991 that the Swiss manufacturer Medella introduced its first electric-powered vacuum-operated breast pump, a pump not intended for in-hospital use in the United States. Since then, the device's sales have quadrupled, and pumps have become such a common parental aid that new mothers, when discharged from hospitals after giving birth, are often provided with a complimentary pump as a parting gift. No kidding. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. Really? Really. I'm wondering if, like, this is a thing in another country. Who... Or, or, like, big city hospitals? No. I'm just not really sure about the, you know, getting one as you leave the hospital. That does sound a little Swedish. Yeah, it does, right? So, breast pumps fall under the same category of medical billing as what I do. Durable medical equipment. So, it pays with the same policy that pays me. So, I know most insurance companies like all insurance companies, cover pumps 100%. No copay, no deductible. You just get a pump. So that being said, hospitals aren't going to give them out for free. 
you know, it's like I'm connecting the dots in my head. The patient's not getting it for free. It's not a complimentary gift. They're billing it to the patient's insurance. And the hospital will get paid for that pump. But the patient will never know about that because there's no copay or deductible. Mm. It's well, covered 100%. No questions asked. In that case, I 100% believe that a hospital would do that. Yeah, absolutely. Because it means they would get paid. They would get paid for it. Okay. I have reconciled getting them upon discharge. I'm glad you worked that out. I have a very close work friend who is a mother of a one-year-old, and she pumps at work all the time. Let me tell you, she hates it. It's not fun. It hurts. Well, it doesn't like hurt. It's uncomfortable. And I'm not going to get like graphic about it or anything, but it's not cool. I think you described it to me the other day, and I think it's best summarized by saying that it's physically taxing in certain ways. Yeah. It's also very boring. Well, I don't think that these women necessarily have too much else that they're allowed to do. No, which is a shame. Like, these ladies are absolutely captives of the Immortan Joe. I mean, sure, they look like they're well-fed. He probably treats them exactly like you would treat any other sort of dairy bovine. Yeah. Speaking of them being obviously well-fed, every time I've seen this movie, it has struck me that all the women in this room are overweight and significantly overweight. Yeah. And that kind of, I'm not sure, it bothered me. It struck me. I noticed every time. And thinking about why. And I think it's because these women are well-fed, well-taken care of, because only a well-nourished woman is going to produce good quality milk. Mm -hmm. And they're also hooked up to these pumps all day, all the time. So they never move. So I think that's why they're all large women. Yeah, they probably have a very steady grain-based diet, like a lot of carbs. Mm -hmm. And if you're not moving around and burning off that carbic energy, it's going to pack on his fat, reserves yep. and whatnot. Yep, it's going to stick around. So it's a little distressing to imagine being hooked up to one of these machines for multiple hours a day. Like, sure, he's got extra women that aren't currently hooked up, but... They can't be spending, okay, maybe just 20 minutes here, 20 minutes there. They're probably not locked into those chairs, but pretty much held down most yeah. hours of the day. Fun fact about breast pumps, the first commercially available fully mechanical breast pump was developed by an Australian engineer. Oh, really? By the name of Fritz Yoakum. Huh. It was in 1871, and this machine was 38 inches tall, 24 inches wide, and weighed over 300 pounds. Probably ran on steam and was absolutely terrifying looking. Yes. <laughs> and a sub-fun fact is that Yoakum tested his prototype pump on kangaroos, since laboratory mice were not readily available in his native region of rural Australia. Now, I may be just a simple country lawyer, who doesn't know the complex anatomy of the kangaroo, but I'm pretty sure the nipple on a kangaroo is inside the pouch. Yeah, by definition, the pouch is accessible from the outside. I'm just saying, he had to first and foremost catch a kangaroo, wrestle it down, and then stick a tube into the pouch until he found the nipple. That just seems so complicated, because marsupials. Well, yes. I mean, the whole, <laughs> the whole thing was complicated. But it was probably easier than trying to convince a woman to sit in front of this giant mechanical monstrosity and have oh it hooked word. up to her breast. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. One last thing about 
mothers and milk producing. I tried to find some sort of concrete answer about how long a mother will keep producing milk. Like, how long can a particular individual in this milk room potentially stay there? And there is no concrete answer on that. The general consensus is that as long as there is a baby or a machine who is feeding, the woman will keep producing. Oh, okay. So these women who are hooked up to these pumps, they could have been there for a while. They could potentially be secure. For years. years. Like, I say secure. They're still slaves. Yes. They're just as much slaves as the war boys. But whereas some of the wretched are brought in to make little fetish items and tinctures and whatnot, and if they don't make something cool, they get thrown off the top of the citadel. I imagine if you are one of these milkmaids and you stop producing milk, you get thrown from the top of the citadel. But if they just are able to continually produce breast milk, like you say, they could, in theory, be protected that way. Yes, very much so. Which, when you think about it, they don't have the worst job at the citadel it's not a great job but it's not the worst well it's There's... certainly better than being one of the wretched yeah these women are still dehumanized they're still treated like animals and they're used as commodities they're slaves but as you say they're not dying out in the hot sun and perhaps as we will learn throughout this movie some things are worse than death mm. like being a slave and there are individuals in this movie who act on those views. I know I said I was going for the last breastfeeding fun fact, but I have one more. Okay. My coworker who breastfeeds, I have learned from her and smelled from her. That came out weird. She drinks a tea that helps keep her supply up. Oh, okay. Because her baby's a year old now and her supply is starting to wane and she doesn't want it to. She wants to keep producing as long as possible. So she drinks a tea. So I looked it up on the good old internet, and there's lots of teas that produce those same effects. Ingredients include blessed thistle, fennel, stinging nettle, goat's rue, alfalfa, milk thistle, anise, marshmallow root, red raspberry leaf, coriander, caraway, and verbena. Lots of herbs and roots, all sorts of things that could possibly be be produced up on top in the hydroponics and up on top of the citadel. So these women might be getting help that would be to maintain cool. their supply. I kind of like the women in this room because we're going to see them at the very end. And it seems to me like they emerge in the absence of Immortan Joe to be an influential class of people in the hereafter. But we'll worry about that when we get to it. Mm -hmm. Because... In the meantime, we have reached the end of this minute. Joe is there. He's holding up a bottle and he hands it off to Rictus and Rictus gives it a sniff and then a sip. And we don't get to hear his assessment if he has anything to say about it because the minute cuts off. So you have to come back on Wednesday because Furios's detour is going to be noticed by Corpus Colossus, who in turn tells his father, causing the Immortan to run off in a hurry to check whatever he keeps behind an old bank vault door. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Bautista of DanielBautista.com. 
Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit madmaxminute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 13 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time.